begin today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 35, verse 30 through chapter 36. Ten chapters ago, God began giving his instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, and now in this chapter, construction finally begins. Under the guidance of master craftsmen, the skilled laborers whom God has blessed with the desire and ability to build have now come to erect the Israelites' portable worship space. Good morning. Today is Thursday, January 12th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Have you checked out our sponsor, Lutheran Heritage Foundation, yet? I really hope you will. When I say they do good work, I mean it. Visit lhfmissions.org to visit and learn more about how you can support their ministry or how they can support yours or your mission. Well, friends, I hope you're having a blessed Epiphany Tide. This week, we've jumped right back into Exodus after the 12 days of Christmas, and now we've come to the end of chapter 35. Construction finally begins. So please join me in welcoming my guest this morning, the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin, Pastor Eddie, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Hey, Happy New Year and Happy Epiphany. It's good to be back. Well, I'm excited to have you back. In fact, the last time I had you on, we were in 1 Corinthians, and I think it was the love the chapter. love chapter. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That was a great time. It was, and it was way back in October. So how has life been at Messiah, and how has God been working through you and your congregation, well, since then? 2022 was a great year, and since the last time we talked, we started a new men's group for the first time in over a decade. We hosted an LWML prayer breakfast, inviting members and non-members. Uh, during 2022, we held two community prayer services and hope to do more in the coming year. We hosted a community spaghetti dinner to meet people in our neighborhood and community. And we hope here during the season of Lent, to bring back our Lenten fish fries on Friday night for about six weeks. At Christmas time, we had members that donated 40 specific gifts through the Giving Tree program to help children who have been living in domestic violent environments. So members would take a tag off the tree and buy a specific gift for a specific child. So, and we were happy for the first time in three years, we restarted our midweek Advent services and we're gonna be doing midweek Lenten services um, and that was good. We're doing a series called Heroes of the Faith based on Hebrews chapter 11. And I will pick a member, write a script, and they come up and play a character. So we've covered Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. And we hope to in the spring to hear from Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, maybe Samson, Samuel, or Gideon. So we're excited about that. And our food pantry continues to feed Families were the only food pantry on the far west side of Beloit. We're a city of 35,000 people, and we've been serving an average of 50 households every time that we open, which is twice a month, two hours apiece. And that, that's roughly equivalent to about 150 people we're feeding every time we open up our food pantry. So, And we just added the Giveified app to help those who don't carry cash or have paper checks so they can more easily give back to the Lord at Messiah. Wow, it sounds like you have a lot going on, some great work. It sounds very interesting with the different skits that people are putting on to kind of introduce folks to biblical characters in a really, I don't know, just I guess a cathartic kind of human way. That's that's amazing. Well, I'm glad that God has been doing all kinds of great things through you, both in your congregation and in the community. And I'm happy that amidst all that, you had some time to set aside to join us today. Before we dig in to our text, I'd like to invite you, as always, to begin us with prayer. Let us pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, through your Son, your work, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. By the power of the Holy Spirit, empower our study of your word this morning through careful reading, listening, learning so we can inwardly digest your word for strength and faith, increased understanding, careful discernment, and application for living your word, so we may walk by faith and not by sight, in order that others may hear and see our good works but give you the glory. For you live and reign as one God, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Epiphany King, we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Well, yesterday we talked about Sabbath regulations, and then God started soliciting contributions for the temple from the people. He was asking them to give of what they had, and of course, much of what they had, they had been given from the Egyptians. Anything else you want to make sure people know before we actually read the text for today? Well, I think it's important to look at the context. We've moved way past uh, the horrible days of the golden calf. I believe it's in Exodus 32. And now they are living the covenant that God has given them. I mean, it's a lopsided agreement. He does everything. And he says, look, all I want you to do is show gratitude back to me by, you know, following the, the commandments and by living it out, by expressing your faith in the building of my tabernacle, where I can dwell among you in a very vivid way. And I think that it's important to see that he isn't just giving them busy work to do. This comes in a much broader context of living the life that he gives us, living that eternal life today through the building of his tabernacle. Yeah, God wants to be amongst his people, but even more importantly, he wants them to know that he's among them. And this tabernacle is an incarnate way in which God is going to dwell literally in the midst of his people's camps. And it is made, or will be made, as soon as we start today, it will be made with these fine materials, everything from lowly bronze and wood all the way up to silver and gold. But these mirror, these, these images are to mirror what's going on in heaven so that people can see that God is amongst them. It, it, so even though it's detailed and you can kind of get stuck in the mud as you're going through all of these explicit details, it really does tell us that God is interested in glory and beauty. It speaks to us today symbolically and also, I think, directly about how we should adorn our worship spaces. You know, not that we should take money away from feeding the poor to decorate our churches, but we certainly shouldn't think that beauty doesn't belong in the worship space or that holy spaces or holy ground no longer exists, that we, we, we should, as God has been instructing his people, to set things aside for holy use. And that's what we've been learning so far. Well, I think the best way to start is to just start. Now, we're actually going to begin with the last five verses of chapter 35. So we'll be covering chapter 36 today. But this narrative begins just a few verses back. And so I'm going to read, let's see here, verse 30 through, let's say, 36, verse 1. Here we go. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, Yahweh has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom Yahweh has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. Well, that ends our text so far. We're just one verse into chapter 36, but it sets the stage because he calls these two men, right, brother? And he's given them the skills and the gifts, and now they're to put it to work, but not in the way that they just want, but rather accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. Fascinating, right? We're starting to actually, we're breaking ground. We have the foreman. Things are actually taking place now, which is probably... I don't know if, if you've ever had like a, if you've built a house for yourself or, or anything like that, you're just so excited about getting it done. And that first day when work starts, it was probably pretty exciting for the Israelites. Boy, that brings me back to 30 years ago when my dad and mom built a house after they'd lived in the one I grew up in for 34 years. 
And you're right there. My dad was kind of the overseer of everything that went on. And he hired people and did things as he had skills and then hired other people to do it. And to this day, my dad passed 10 years ago. But to this day, my mom still lives in that house and it is really, really well constructed. So it is worth the planning to do that. And this shows us, you know, because we should be asking ourselves, well, what does this have to do with my life? Is this supposed to be kind of a descriptive passage of the way I approach it, the expansion of our church or my home? Well, I guess you could look at it that way, but I think there's a lot of prescriptive passages that come later that talk about God giving us the talents to teach, to train various members, not just to physically expand our churches, but also in the work of the church in general. And I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, where the Apostle Paul says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everything. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, And then it goes on from there. And so what uh, this is illustrating is what we still see today. Same God, same Holy Spirit, still equipping us to do the work of the church. We don't just do, we don't do this on our own. He gives us the gifts to do it for his glory. Yeah, giving us those gifts is, I think, a key point of what Moses is saying here, because when we think about the skills of Bezalel, I have a hard time saying that, and also Holiab, these are men who are obviously fine craftsmen, and one might wonder, are these skills that they possessed even while they were in Egypt? Because there were lots of things that the slaves did in Egypt for the benefit of the temple priests and the so-called gods of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and all of his family. So they would have been put to work. They would have had these great skills. Uh, But now they're doing it for the one and only real God. (laughs) It was like what they were doing before was a dress rehearsal, okay? You know, playing to really no audience. But now the audience is the most important audience, and that is to God and to be a witness. Remember the The Israelites, once they were supposed to take the promised land, were supposed to be a beacon of light for the Gentiles. So they're not just doing this, doing it for themselves. God is doing it through them so he can be glorified as the light of the world. Yeah. And think about it from their point of view, though. They're sitting there. They don't. I mean, how they were religiously before Moses came along, it's really hard to tell. But still, assuming that they hadn't bought into the cult of the Egyptians, there they are, and they're like, oh, you know, why am I having to weave, you know, beautiful garments for the Pharaoh's daughter? Why am I having to build, you know, ark? we think of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they had very similar structures in Egypt for their gods. And so it's like, why am I having to build these things for these gods? And now they know. God has given them these gifts. He knew that he was going to press them into his service even way back then. But one thing that I didn't really, didn't stand out to me until as you were talking and I was considering what you were saying is verse 34 and he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab. So obviously you're going to need a ton of craftsmen, but I really just for the first time, as I was rereading this, did I realize that Aholiab and Bezalel, these are, they, they've been given these gifts from God, but they've also been given the gift of teaching. Their job is to go and teach others. And that speaks to what you were saying too. We sing, what do we sing as Lutherans? We give thee but thine own, whatever the gifts may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. May we thy bounties thus as stewards true receive, and gladly as thou blessed us, to thee our first fruits give. And that is on display here. You know, they didn't work with a cash economy. There's a lot of bartering going on. They were given a lot of these items on the way out of Egypt when Pharaoh said, get out of here. I don't want you around anymore. After the the 10th plague where the firstborn were killed, the Passover. Okay. And so God had given them these things. You know, you can say, yeah, the Egyptian did, but God wanted to make it very clear. I'm the one who got you out of Egypt. 
Pharaoh didn't let you go. Now I'm the one who's giving you these things. And now we're going to use these, these gifts of creation that I have made for a good right and salutary reason. You said it's been a long while, though, since we've been around the fire where the golden calf just jumped out, according to Aaron, right? So we, we've had them use these gifts from and their skills in a bad way, and, and, you know, to create a god, to worship a false god, to create an idol. And now, here we go, we have them having repented from that since this point, the covenant's been given, re-given, and now they're they're doing it the right way. So, you know, it shows us that the gifts that we have and even the things that we have, in this case, say gold, can be used for God or against God or in ways that aren't God-pleasing. And so it's great to finally see them putting it to work for God's good purposes. Amen, brother. That is excellent. That's a good way to take a look at it. And it really is something for us in our churches today when we feel we don't have a lot to ask God for more, but look for the way that he wants to provide for us, not the way we think he should provide for us. Notice in here, you didn't have Moses or others say, well, I don't know, maybe we should, maybe we should do it this way over here. Maybe we should do it this way over here. They listened to the Lord. They followed what he said. And, and when he did, when they did that, there was blessing in the obedience. Right. It says that they shall do the work in accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. So you have Moses isn't saying, well, you know, this is about, you know, a quarter, maybe a third of a football field size, but I really think it needs to be larger, right? Because we're going to fill this space up. Nope. God says, build it this way. And they do. Well, I'd like to add to the conversation verses two through seven. Because something surprising happens here as it comes to people contributing. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind Yahweh had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that Yahweh has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Brother, have you ever had to get up in front of the congregation and say, guys, the offerings, it's out of control. It's too much. <laughs> you, you guys have brought so much. You need to quit bringing that. We don't know what to do with it. We've invested it. We've given it. We've burned it for heat. We don't know what to do with it. No, we've never had to do that. But that's kind of what's going on here, right? Two things are going. One, the people are coming bringing free will offerings, and two, the workmen themselves are coming out of their hearts. Wonderful stuff. Go ahead. Well, and and this again reminds me of what Paul was dealing with with the Corinthian Christians, the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8, in order to shame the Corinthians into giving what they promised to give to the church at Jerusalem— this rich congregation, which had many more means than the poor church of Macedonia, he's telling them in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, look, they're, they're overflowing. They're giving from their extreme poverty to the point where it's implied, look, stop giving church of Macedonia and start giving congregation at Corinth because I've given you everything to excel in faith and speech and knowledge and to act on my grace that I've given you. And yet this little poor Macedonian church is giving, is overflowing with their generosity to others. And that reminds us, you know, as Americans, we think at times in our congregations, we don't have much. Oh, we do. We have much more than we realize. I remember in 1993, there was a big flood that hit St. Louis. The river, Mississippi River was overflowing, even changed course in some areas. And so a number of our LCMS congregations were damaged in part from the flood. And I remember reading an article, and I don't know if it was in the Reporter or one of our official publications, 
about the Lutheran Church of Uganda gathered up $18,000 and sent it for the relief of our congregations in the St. Louis area. That just profoundly inspired me to realize that if the Lord wants to bless our efforts, he has already given us the means to do many things for his glory. And that part of, of good stewardship is being grateful for what he has given us. Wow. I'm just thinking about that. Isn't that amazing? You know, and people have come together and to help others. And it's not so much as people should sit back and go, all right, well, I think I'll help say the the people in the Americas with, you know, from our from our relatively poor country. But they say, nope, let's just see what we can do. We'll help. We don't think about it. We're not saying, well, if we can gather so much, then we'll help. Or if, but the Lord not only will provide, but in many cases has already provided for everything we need and more. That's that's interesting thought. It's important. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. He who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. God says you've been enriched in every way to be generous, in which through us will produce a thanksgiving to God. And so this is Paul speaking to a congregation to be cheerful givers, not reluctant. You don't, you don't hear anybody in this text reluctantly giving up what they brought to the tabernacle. They're willingly doing it to the point where, and you know they're willingly doing it because there's more than enough to take care of the supplies, to take care of building the tabernacle. And yeah, nobody's sitting back saying, well, you know, I, I have this extra gold, but I kind of wanted to keep it, but I'll, I'll see if anybody else brings any. Nope, they're just doing it. And add to that the fact that it says in verse 2, in terms of the worksmen, workmen and the craftsmen, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Now, we think of the Lord stirring up people's heart, but in general, this just just sort of a generic statement that says the people who came up to do the work were the ones who wanted to. Moses didn't stand up there and command all able-bodied men to come learn from Bezalel and Aholiab how to do the work. It was those who were reflecting on their time in Egypt, likely, and now are saying, you know, I could do this, teach me, or I have the skills, let me put them to work. No one's having to be drafted into this service. With an interesting contrast, because I was reviewing how the temple was built in Solomon's day, and he used forced labor. Mm, I don't know if you remember uh, that. No, I, I he, don't recall He actually that. enslaved his own people in order to get the temple done. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. Because I was at First Kings chapter six, I was reviewing before our time together. Wow, that's definitely a rabbit hole that I'll want to go down because eventually, because that's a, that is a fascinating discrepancy. Because we see here people just joyfully doing it, and then you even have where the Lord is content with the worship space that He's given the people, and the whole kerfuffle around building the temple in itself is something interesting. And the fact that it grows exponentially is important, and it certainly speaks to our God and his presence, but it also speaks a little bit to you know someone building something to glorify themselves. We think of Herod's temple, which you know, takes up three or four city blocks of Jerusalem. You know How much is that to glorify God, and how much of that is to glorify Herod? Because after all, we do call it Herod's temple to this day. Well, yes, and he didn't even b believe in the Messiah, you know, right. when Jesus stood in front of him. I love it from Jesus Christ Superstar. Show me you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Show me you're divine. Turn the water into wine. You know, a a cynical approach, or a, well, not cynical, but actually representative of, of what Herod was. You know, these were genuine believers here building the tabernacle. Herod was not. He, he was there, yes, to, as you said, to glorify himself. And, and so Jesus' words in John chapter 2, when he says, this temple will be destroyed and I will rebuild it in three days. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But if you remember when Jesus was going to the cross, he said, don't weep for me, weep for your children. He was predicting judgment would come on Jerusalem because they were doing things like this for their glory, not for the glory of God. Well, something for us to consider and think about 
while we take a break. So folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Eddie and I will keep on going with Exodus chapter 36. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Did you know that you can contact me directly with your questions and comments? It's true. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can visit me on Facebook. I love hearing from you. Now, Pastor Eddie, before the break, we were just talking about, you know, doing things for the for the right reasons, right? God gives us skill. We should put those skills into service for the Lord, not to build up ourselves, whether that is having the ability to weave or fashion gold into something useful, as we see in this text, or even if we had the ability to build a temple for God, as Herod did, do you do it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? And what's beautiful about this text so far as you've pointed out, this is all free will. This is free will in the sense that they're doing this out of their love for God. So these offerings as an expression of the faith that yeah. He gave them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. Covenant. Yeah. So we see this, and they're doing it according to God's will. Anything else that you want to put out there before we add some more verses to the conversation? Let's move forward. Let us do that then. So we are going to read verses 8 through 18. Why not? Here we go. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made fifty loops on the one curtain, and he made fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite each other, and he made fifty clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with the clasps. So the tabernacle was a single whole. He made also the curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain was 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single hole and he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. That's actually through verse 19, but there we go. So we have a lot of description, and all this description is pointing us back to when God first gave us all these details. But it's amazing, right? We're putting together God's tabernacle, and we have all of these beautiful works being, being done. If you want to see a detailed picture of what is being described. This is a great advertisement for the Lutheran Study Bible. On page 139 in the book of Exodus, they lay out, and you can actually see where the crossbars are, the where the silver bases are, where the veils are. And you can see, based on this description, how the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle is coming together. So I commend that to your readers for that. And there's, of course, other resources out there, but I, I know that they're following this text very closely. Yes. And speaking of following it very closely, what's going on here in Exodus 36, just 10 chapters earlier in Exodus 26, it is a precise 
match the description. And that speaks a lot too. You know, Moses doesn't have a photocopier, right? So he's not photocopying the page. He's rewriting the whole thing. Why would Moses not just say, and they made everything according to God's command, as I previously mentioned, he wouldn't have had chapters, but if he would have, he would have said back in chapter 26, but no, instead he, he lists it all out again in detail, utilizing precious vellum, I suppose, to write these words out. And, uh, and of course, not only that, but the time and effort. Now, obviously we just say, well, because God told him to, but why, why rewrite it? God is a detailed God. You know, one of the things that I think is an apologetic for the Genesis 1 and 2 being a historic narrative is uh, C.S. Lewis said, well, if this was written as a fairy tale, it's a very poorly written fairy tale. It's written as, look at the details of creation on what day. I mean, God could have said, well, I created the heavens and the earth and then gone on right into to, to chapter 3. But when we go back and look at that text, we see the beauty, the tapestry of how everything is interwoven and, and works together toward the whole. And that goes to this here. In fact, the term single whole in the ESV translation is used twice. It's used at the end of verse 13 to describe the tabernacle, God's dwelling as a single whole. And then it talks about that the tent is a single whole. And so twice we see this is one single unit to God, a single whole. And it, it brings up images of Christ's garment when he was being crucified, how the soldiers were not going to divide his garment. They saw how beauty the single whole was, and they ended up gambling for it to see who was going to get that. Jesus himself is described in John chapter 1 as the Word made flesh who dwelt among us, who made his tabernacle among us or temple among us. And, and so he is a, the ultimate single whole of God in the flesh. So there's a lot of powerful images here that the, all the details are working together to help us believe and appreciate just how much God works to give us his blessings, including the ultimate blessing of heaven. Yeah, I wouldn't have considered that. Yeah, for clarity, for those who are listening at home, if you haven't figured it out, when he says single whole, of course he means W-H-O-L-E, single whole, like one complete piece. And yeah, the tabernacle is a single whole. You know, why make that distinction if it doesn't point forward to something? I mean, certainly I suppose it's a detail for putting the things together. But I think that when we take these imagery, this imagery rather, and we're able to connect it to Christ in a way that says, wow, you know, when we have the tabernacle, this is their pe these people's access to God. The only way they can access God is through here. They walk in the gate, the big wide 30-foot door, but they walk in the single door, there's only one. And they go to the bronze, they go past the bronze altar, reminding them that you can only access God through sacrifice. And then, of course, they approach the Holy of Holies, which, unless they're the high priest, they can't even go in. And even he can't go in but once a year. But the point is, this is how they access God. In these last days, we access God through Christ, right? We don't access him through sacrifice, but rather through his sacrifice, he feeds us. There's this beautiful imagery. So when he talks about these details, I liked your quote from, I think, C.S. Lewis, you said, Right. It doesn't make for a very good fairy tale. Well, this doesn't make for a very good uh, narrative or story either. Just listing off the 50 loops and the edges of the curtains. I mean, even the most prolific writer is probably not going to do to dis describe the things in their in their stories in this much detail. Oftentimes, they'll just leave the rest up to your imagination. But in this case, no, it's more like a technical manual. So these are here for a purpose, and the purpose is to point us forward to Christ's presence. And, of course, we now find that in Jesus. So I love that single whole. I hadn't really considered that before. We do not believe in a vague God. We believe in a very detailed God. You know, God doesn't just describe himself as God, Yahweh. He, he is the God of existence. He's the one that really, he really does exist, Okay. And he shows himself very tangibly. And it's very interesting because a lot of times to explain why divine worship of God, how he blesses us, I think 
most Christians would agree that God is present everywhere, but his presence isn't always equally known, equally felt, equally experienced. You know, if I'm out on the road and there's people that are trying to cut me off in traffic and and perhaps I'm expressing my displeasure using hand gestures that I shouldn't use, God's presence is veiled because I'm veiling it by my own sinful self. But when we come into God's house where his presence is is vivid, okay, and the the surroundings in the tabernacle remind us of just how vivid God's presence is. Every little thing there stands for something of God. The gold stands for his majesty. The the bronze stands for his strength. Okay, the scarlet, which eventually became the symbol of sin, is is cleaned away, wiped away through the blood of Christ. And and in our modern churches, these imageries help to remind us of who God is. And in their tabernacle, I'm sure that these colors and metals and fabrics all had a special significance so that they knew that the presence of God is really there in a very vivid way. And that's ultimately the point. As they're heading toward Canaan, as they're headed toward the promised land, God wants him to know that he dwells among them, that he's with them, especially when it wasn't too long ago that he was ready to just abandon them. Like, I'll send my angel with you, but I'm not coming because if I do, I'll smite you all because you're going to just fall into sin again. But Moses intercedes, and here we have this beautiful presence among them. Another reason why I think it's also so detailed is pretty simplistic, but it's true, and that is Moses wants to explain that they did everything that God had told them to do. So a, a great way in Hebrew especially to emphasize that is to give God's instructions again. But this time it's not his instructions, it's what they did. So that you can now compare what God instructed with what they did. You see that it matches perfectly and then you are assured that, in this case anyway, they were following the will of God. And that sort of speaks to their ability to follow the will of God. You know, they've gone from being a rebellious people to now demonstrating that they can do what he asks. So it makes it all the more curious when they continue to fall into sin as their, as their salvation, our salvation story unfolds. Well, it reminds us of the struggle we face as both saint and sinner that Paul so eloquently expresses in Romans 7, you know, the good I want to do, I don't do. The the sin I don't want to do, that I keep right on doing. You know, I'm paraphrasing it, but you get the idea there that we struggle between saint and sinner. The And God understands that that's going to happen, okay? What he doesn't like is when people totally walk away from his covenant, to walk away from Christ, walk away from his tabernacle, you know, I think one of the most challenging things that we face in ministry is we walk it and run into people that say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ or I believe in God. I just don't attend worship. Really? So you want, you're starving yourself from God's word. You're denying the opportunity to, to have your faith strengthened, especially with the struggles that you're facing in life. And so it's interesting that in the temple era of, of, this holy sanctuary of God, how the 10 tribes to the north, the reason why they never had a good king is they refused to come down to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God in the temple that Solomon had built. And so when we deny ourselves that vivid presence, or for Christians today, deny ourselves the tangible presence in Christ's body and blood and holy communion, we are denying him loving us and showing us how much he cares for us. And, and I think that we as Christians who are faithful at attending worship need to be a witness more to those who claim to have faith, and perhaps they do, maybe they don't, maybe they're fooling themselves, or maybe they're on the edge of walking away from their faith to say, look, come to God's house, come to his tabernacle where he dwells, come to his temple, his holy place. People do struggle with that, what we would call the ubiquity of God. That is that God is everywhere all the time, his omnipresence. And that is, of course, true. That's an attribute of God. But what this tabernacle tells us, as what we've also seen with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, 
is that God makes himself known and available in very special ways, too. So I think it was Luther who said, you know, it, God is everywhere, but he's for you, right? In this, in the, in the sacraments, right? So he's there for you. Another guest had brought up that example, and I think it's very apropos that yes, we can encounter God anywhere, but we can only encounter God in the special way that He comes to us in the sacraments. Well, obviously, where they're offered, and they could only come before God in this special way through sacrifice, through going to the tabernacle. You know, this is a lot of work. God giving these instructions for the tabernacle, commanding that the look at the final goal here. This is the place where they Sabbath. This is the place where they rest. So, isn't it interesting that they work very hard to build this tabernacle? But even even with that, God wanted them to take the time for them to rest, so that He could sharpen their faith, so that He could renew their strength because he knew they were going to be facing challenges ahead. And so we also have to see our sanctuaries as resting places. Well, that's right. I mean, God is doing these things for our benefit, just as he was doing this for their benefit. But the benefit comes from making yourself available. And I think that this is what we've lost today. You know, God establishes this beautiful tabernacle, which they have to pack up and move and reassemble exactly according to God's will every time they move. And of course, eventually the temple and then eventually the temple, which is Christ. And then eventually the temple, which is our own bodies, temple of the Holy Spirit. These things exist because God wants to dwell among us. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up that Sabbath rest because we don't want to forget about that. It is for the purpose of resting in Christ. God doesn't really benefit from any of this. It's for us. Now let's finish out our chapter by reading verse 20 all the way through the end, which is verse 38. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for the frames of the tabernacle, all of them. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, 20 frames for the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver for the 20 frames, two bases under the one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames, and he made two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. And they were separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. With cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. He embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. There is our text through the end of our chapter. So lots more details here, but certainly these details continue to speak to us, not only just that they are following God's will, but yeah, there's a lot of neat symbolism there. What do you see in this text, brother? Is it acacia wood? Is that that's how you pronounce it? That's how it, I right? pronounce it. <laughs> that was a very durable wood. Yeah. Well, and it was one that did not rot, which right. is very interesting because, you know, a lot of our, uh, like I have an oak tree outside my house here that uh, we have a relative of ours who's going to be taking it down because it's been there for 200 years and it's ready to die. But even oak trees, you don't normally think of trees lasting 200 years, but oak is a very durable wood. So, you know, it's interesting. We think of the wood of the cross and how durable what Jesus did there 
is for our lives into eternity. So there again, rich symbolism there if you really want to dig into it. You know, and like I had mentioned before, you know, yarn here is was something that was put the ephod. It was part of the the priest robe, the breastplate. Okay. And what is blue and purple? Doesn't that point to our king? It the the color of royalty, especially purple. You look at the fine linen. Linen was a clothing of authority that, that was symbolized in there. Even the goat's hair is an animal of sacrifice. You know, the the way that they showed their gratitude for what God had done, liberating them from 400 years of slavery. So there's just a lot of things that are going on in the text that if you wanted to break it down, points to some aspect of our faith with our Lord. Right. And that is, isn't that neat to be able to look all the way back? And people might say, well, is are you sure that that's the intention for all these things? And I would say, well, I don't know that it's always exactly the intentions, but what we're seeing here is that God is a God of, as you said, details, a God of order, as I like to say, and I'm sure you do too, a God of patterns, right? He reuses things, and we see all of this stuff building up to Christ. And so if we find Christ in the, you know, remind, being reminded to us from some of these details, it's wonderful. Like acacia wood is also just a very beautiful wood, but the fact that it also has this practical use of not easily rotten makes sense as they're going to have to be traversing through the desert with this, through the wilderness with this thing. But also we're reminded of what Christ did on the cross. So anytime we encounter wood in the worship space of the Lord, it's going to remind us of that tree upon which our, 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 our Savior hung. But then also the beauty too, the 40 silver bases and these bronze and gold clasps and the loops. And then the cherubim, right? I think it might have been in the previous section, but still we have the cherubim woven into this in this intricate detail. Beam obviously are pointing us through the throne room of God. They're winged angels ready for service, right? They were there to protect the tree of life in the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve didn't die or didn't live eternally in condemnation. They so they're they're a protector, they're ready to serve. Isn't that point to Jesus and what he did for us? Absolutely. The ultimate service from the cross. Right. Christ dies for us. Our ultimate protector from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Yeah, it you know, it's it's just amazing how God is preparing them even you know, thousands of years before Christ, God is setting them up so that they are prepared to pass down the stories, to to be prepared generationally for what is to come. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. What else can we see in this text? The topology, you know, you're bringing out the topology. You have a tabernacle, all right? It's a tent. It's a very beautifully decorated tent, but then it leads to the temple. And if you go and read uh, 1 Kings 5 and 6 and the details in building the temple, everything is doubled. The square footage is doubled. The furnishings are more than doubled. I mean, more gold is overlaid in in the temple. The curtain is replaced with a wall. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, and you can just see that typology leading to Jesus, who is a lot more valuable than all of those furnishings. If you added up their value combined, the ultimate And yet the temple is also a symbol of sometimes where we are in our faith walk with God. You know, we start off with humble beginnings and we humbly and faithfully serve the Lord with the, with the tabernacle. And then the Lord blesses us with even more. And then at some point, as we said earlier, it then becomes about us and the Lord has to humble us. Because if you look at the furnishings of the second temple versus the first, they were a lot humbler. There wasn't the gold there. There was a lot of brass and copper in the second temple, and the curtain came back. But God is still merciful. What's the one thing that happened at 3 o'clock when Christ gave up the ghost? What happened was the temple curtain, that that single hole, W-H-O-L-E, was shredded in two so that there would no longer be a barrier between us and God the Father. That reconciliation occurred. 
So the imagery of the tabernacle to the temple, to the second temple, to the ultimate temple, the ultimate uh, uh, tabernacle, Jesus, points us to the cross and to our salvation. Well, brother, we only have a few minutes left in the program, and I've appreciated having you on. I'm going to give you those last few minutes to sum up or give a message however you'd like to do during this epiphany time. It reminds us that we treat holy things in holy ways. I think today we've lost the art of tradition and formality, for somehow we think something's old-fashioned. I, I had a conversation with one of my members who some friends and family have called her old-fashioned because she actually likes to set a table with silverware and a plate and napkins. And, 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 and I think that we don't want to lose that formality. We don't want to become legalistic or pietistic about it. But I think sometimes in our modern throwaway world where, where we have instant access to pretty much anything we want through our phones and our computers, it's good to get away from all that and go back and remember just what Jesus had to sacrifice to give himself for us and to realize that there is something in admiring the cross and the settings of our worship areas so that we can see and be reminded of just how much God loves us. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Thank you, brother, for being on the show. Hopefully it won't be months and months before we have you again. Hopefully it'll be a lot sooner. Thank you for having me, and God's blessings to you and your ministry. Folks, do not turn off the radio just yet. I want you to know that tomorrow we are doing something a little different on the show. Every first Friday of each month, we're going to have a special topic. The show is live, so you can call in with your questions. And I know, I know, I hear you. Tomorrow is not the first Friday of the month, but it is the first Friday after Thy Strong Word has returned from the Christmas break. So be sure to tune in as I welcome the Reverend Amadeus Gandhi. He's a pastor and United States Air Force chaplain, and he's going to take us through something unique, the use of the Apocrypha in the liturgy. Not sure what that is? Well, that's even more reason to tune in tomorrow at 11 a.m. Don't worry, though. We'll get right back to Exodus on Monday with chapter 37. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Mm